From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, anti-integrin therapy and Brioin microscopy at the AAO. In fact, one of their biggest roles that uh, we're looking at is retinal vascular instability, and these are agents that help stabilize the, uh, the retinal vasculature. First this. There's a lot to be said for the printed page. It's always on, loads instantly, it's very high resolution, and there's no monthly fee. But one thing it's not is interactive. I know journals have advertised interactive content and multimedia, but to get to it, you need to type a URL in a computer. iWorld AR changes all that. Once you have the app, you simply aim your phone at an iWorld page with the AR symbol and videos, interactive material, presentations, and podcasts appear in the page. Amazing! The effect is stunning and the app is free. Go to the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store and search iWorld AR. That's so great. That's one word with no spaces. iWorld AR. Great job. Search iWorld AR, one word, on the App Store or the Play Store. It's like ophthalmology's secret decoder ring. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the 2017 AAO annual meeting in New Orleans. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld Replay website as brief videos. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we hear from Baruch Cooperman on a novel anti-integrin medication and Theo Seiler on in vivo Brioin microscopy. I'm here with Baruch Cooperman. Baruch, you're speaking on an interesting subject, an interesting drug. Before we get to... Uh, the results of this novel anti-integrin therapy. Tell me, what role do integrins play in in the in the retina and um, retinopathy and in pathology? Generally, my, my understanding was that that integrins were I don't want to say just. I guess my knowledge is just um, cell uh, 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 um, adhesion signalers. What's well, very true. They work in the extracellular matrix, but it's interesting. The more we study about integrins, uh, they're, they're made up of uh, uh, two units, typically an alpha and a beta unit, and they have different subsets within them. And uh, there, so there's a whole family as, you know, the, when you look at the map of integrins, it's a little bit like going into the uh, men in black when they open up the locker. There's a whole other universe there. So there's a whole other universe of integrin inhibition and integrin pathways and integrin signaling. But basically they're involved through the extracellular matrix in various cell trafficking, cell survival signals that lead to um, roles in edema, angiogenesis, uh, vascular uh, stability. In fact, one of their biggest roles that uh, we're looking at is, and one of the problems associated with diabetes and why that's one of the diseases being targeted is retinal in- uh, vascular instability. And these are agents that help stabilize the, uh, the retinal vasculature. They work also throughout the body. They're being studied in other parts of the body as well. But our focus here is certainly uh, with intravitreal uh, 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 
integrin inhibition, again, this Luminate compound uh, by Allegro Pharmaceuticals, uh, is the subject of this you know, the study in diabetics, the Delmar study, but it's working to stabilize the retinal vasculature in diabetics. So let, let, me, let me ask you this. I mean, in my, my simplistic view of the, of the retina, um, I, 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 I pictured this pathway in which there was VEGF and then you would get vascular budding and you, you would get vascular leakage and that. But, you know, where, where, does, where does integrin fit, fit in with it? Where do integrins um, fit in with this? What is the relationship between integrins and VEGF? And the reason that I ask this is because I want to move to talk about your study, which involved not only this anti-integrin medication, but the incorporation of anti-VEGF medication too. Right. Well, this study looked at combination therapy um, of various types, uh, meaning different uh, formatting of how you place an anti-VEGF in combination with uh, this uh, compound. But again, Diabetes or diabetic macroedema is promoted by various several pathways, um, and one of them is a, a very clearly an anti-VEGF or a VEGF-mediated pathway, and VEGF inhibition continues to be very important. But there's other, there's neurodegenerative aspects, there's vascular instability aspects, there's other components to it that illuminate this new compound, the synegrin uh, peptide, um, is uh, capable of controlling, and so it looks like it is potentially most useful in people that have actually failed anti-VEGF therapy when the mechanism is not via the VEGF-mediated pathway, Luminate appears to be uh, a good option to consider, um, and so that one would initially treat theoretically under this paradigm, and we're still studying more, there's more studies going on, but one would initially treat under this paradigm uh, with uh, anti-VEGF therapy and then follow on uh, with uh, Luminate therapy and appear to achieve significant effects, particularly in people that have not responded uh, well to anti-VEGF therapy or have incomplete response. Now, now in this phase two trial, uh, there were three treatment arms uh, and the study population itself w- was made up of uh, patients who were both treatment naive, uh, VEGF treatment naive, and uh, VEGF, I don't know what the opposite is, VEGF treatment veterans. Um, what were the three treatment arms, and did the results differentiate themselves with these two populations? Right, so there was an Avastin-only arm, there was an Avastin combination with Luminate arm, and there was an Avastin initial treatment follow- with a follow-on with Luminate. And interestingly, um, the combination arm did less well, and we're trying to understand that better. Uh, but the arm that had the Avastin follow with follow-on with Luminate uh, did as well as Avastin therapy alone, but with the important caveat that the last treatment uh, with Avastin was 12 weeks before the readout, and so far you had a strong persistence of effect, whereas Avastin needed every four-week injection in the context of the study, so that you got uh, comparable results in uh, with uh, with uh, Luminate follow-on, but much much less frequent injections every 12, uh, so 12-week persistence of effect. Huh, that's really, really interesting. So was it that your thinking is is that you get an an initial r- reduction in what VEGF is, is, is doing with the anti-VEGF therapy and then 
suppression of VEGF production later on as a result of the luminate? I mean, how do you think that, that this works? Uh, we're still studying on that, but again, it, that's one of the hypotheses. But basically, you're sopping up the VEGF with, when you use anti-VEGF. But then you're inhibiting further production by creating more vascular stability and therefore less generation of VEGF is the concept, and therefore uh, more stable vasculature, and therefore less edema, and therefore uh, better vision over time. Did only the uh, VEGF treatment naive patients benefit from Luminate? How did it play out? Uh, in fact, uh, patients uh, that were treatment naive benefited, but even more importantly, patients that had a suboptimal response or a plateau response to VEGF inhibition previously had the best outcomes. Uh, the proportionate increase was best in that group that had failed uh, or had had less good anti uh, response to anti-VEGF therapy. Huh. So the, these are phase two trials. I, I'm, I'm not going to hold you to this, but when, when do you think that, that, that we're, that we're going to see this in, in clinical practice? I mean, it's a bottom line question. Right, of course. Well, we're now designing the phase three trial. We have several uh, designs options that we're considering based on assessing the full impact of this uh, phase 2B study. Uh, but there still has a phase 3 trial to go that's hopefully will be initiated in 2018. And again, those take a while. So we're still probably several years out. But every step of the way has looked very promising to date. So we're very excited about this potential new, brand new approach to therapy. Again, historically, we've had anti-VEGF. And we do have corticosteroids as well. Um, so we have the sort of the three anti-VEGFs that are used a lot in Osrodex uh, and Alluvian for, as corticosteroids at Triamcinolone. Uh, less so now, I'd say, these days. But it's still an important. Uh, feature, but this is yet a different pathway, a different approach to it, and I think that will really greatly increase our ability to treat those patients with diabetic macular edema that are still not getting a complete access to therapy uh, that uh, that we would like them to have. Barclay, this is really, really, really cool stuff. I want to thank you for bringing this really neat topic to us and for being so very generous with your time with us today. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. I'm here with Teo Seiler. Teo, you're speaking on, on an interesting sub- subject, or a really cool thing, uh, which is Brion uh, microscopy uh, in, in vivo for, for, for corneas with, with keratoconus. Before we get to the project, we, we, we really need some, some, some background here. Um, what, I, I hesitate to ask this, 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 this question. Is it possible to explain in relatively simple language what Brion microscopy is, what yeah. Brion scatter is? Um, actually, Monsieur, Monsieur Brion from France did his experiments nearly 100 years ago, and he showed very clearly that measuring matter with light uh, makes it possible to investigate in a way that you, after all, get a a number for the elastic modulus of that tissue. So in the cornea, make it very short, in the cornea you measure with light the elastic modulus uh, non-invasively and even as a no-touch method, which was so far not possible. So the the and and again just in simple terms that I, I can I can understand there there are there are properties of of solid state matter um, that can interact with light and it's not um, and it, they're not the electromagnetic characteristics these are other things going on with the with the with the matter and then we can infer from this this interaction th- things about 
the property of that of that tissue. Yeah, especially in keratoconus, there's a long-standing suspicion that the keratoconus exists because the cornea is weaker or softer or more flexible. But so far, that was tested only in dead eyes and never in living eyes. And now, on a sudden, we can do this in living eyes, yours and mine. Actually, I was the first human patient, living patient, where it has been done, um, just to measure how the elastic modulus of the cornea is. And this was unprecedented so far, and that's why it's such a breakthrough to find out that the corneal, um, the corneal elastic modulus in keratoconus is soft, is low. Uh, due to cross-thinking, we increase it, and that effect continues to increase over the years. Oh, really? So. Uh, you, you've, you've done a study uh, in which you've compared controls to patients with keratoconus using Brion uh, my, my microscopy, and you can see a difference between the, the two populations. Is it possible to dissect out from the, from the data um, whether th- these changes in keratoconic corneas are uniform or, or you know, sectoral? Or, or is, is no, in essence, even, even better, we could... Uh, by mapping prion microscopy of a diseased cornea, we could even identify the weakest point, which actually was not in the middle, where it's thinnest, but where it's bulging out the most in the inferior temporal part of the cornea. That was um, a kind of information that was not available so far. So, is is the I mean, this is fascinating stuff. I don't have to tell you. Um, is the the objective of the the study to demonstrate that there is this extant difference that cross-linking changes it and that the benefits carry forward? Or is this something that we're going to be able to use as an actual clinical tool? Oh, th- that is the main purpose of the BRIOM microscopy, just to detect weak corneas and areas of the corneas that are weak. That is the primary goal of BRIOM microscopy. But in a side cut, we, on a shortcut, we just recognize that um, cross-linking increases the stiffness of the cornea, which has so far not been able to be detected because aura, optical response analyzer, as well as the corvus, failed in showing that stiffening of the cornea. And, and of course, these are technologies that you mentioned, hysteresis, which is not based on, on, on Brion physics here. Not at all. Huh. Um, how do the, the cross-linked corneas compare to normal corneas? Oh, the cross-linked cornea uh, are shifted from a weaker point on average just in the normal range. So we are not doing an over-cross-linking using the today's parameters. That was a something, uh, some kind of a surprise for me also because we never were sure whether we are doing an over-cross-linking of the cornea or an under-cross-linking. No, cross-linking brings them back to normal uh, stiffness of the cornea. Really, really fascinating stuff. Teo, I want to thank you for, for bringing this really interesting topic to us, for being so very generous with your time with us today. Baruch Cooperman is chair of the Department of Ophthalmology at UC Irvine in Irvine, California. Teo Seiler is head of the Institute for Refractive and Ophthalmic Surgery in Zurich, Switzerland. Ask questions of Dr. Cooperman, Dr. Seiler, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. 
These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.